Um, I was a really good kid growing up. Dare I say, a perfect child. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty convinced that uh, from the ages of birth until 10, the only sin I committed was sneaking into my parents' room to see my Christmas presents one year. I may be exaggerating a little bit, yet, like, you get the picture. Like, I was a really good kid. And this goodness um, existed within me from the sort of, like, deep religious conviction. Uh, I've shared many times about, like, um, both my parents being involved in ministry. Like, we were a very Christian home, and so, like, very early on, I got this sort of conviction that, like, goodness is what God wanted. That God wanted me to be a good kid. Now, the way that this often played itself out in my life was that it meant to uh, listen to my parents, obey my teachers, and don't swear. Which, that last point is kind of funny to me because my dad, despite being a pastor, swore like a sailor. So I'm not sure where I picked that one up. Uh, Yet, you know, that still uh, was something that I carried around. And so, uh, because this came from this religious sort of conviction, like, I found myself being, like, a very, very deeply, deeply convicted kid. And one of the, like, haunting questions that I found myself grappling with often uh, was this question of, like, am I loving God? And I would find myself asking this question particularly um, on, like, Sunday mornings in church. Uh, we went to more charismatic sorts of expressions of worship. And so I'd see people raising their hands and maybe even dancing and maybe even speaking in tongues or something like that. And, like, that just wasn't my experience. And I remember, like, thinking, like, do I actually love God? Now I look back all these years later and, like, like, what, what does that even mean? What does that question mean, right? Uh, it's sort of like, uh, can you uh, explain the chemical reaction that happens during joy? Like, once you do it, you kind of miss the point, yeah, right? And yet, um, I, I think it's a really relevant question. Um, because as I've said many times, the one thing that I know about this group is y'all a bunch of do-gooders, yeah? Uh, like, you, I, I know that there's this deep conviction, this deep sense of, like, wanting to love God, and so what does it mean for us to like, love God? Is there a way for us to know if we are actually loving God? Well, fortunately, uh, this seems to be one of the questions that Jesus addresses uh, during his um, earthly uh, life and ministry and teaching. And so we see this uh, happening in Matthew chapter 22. Now, a little bit of context here in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem for the last time. Now, this is a significant sort of turning point in the life of Jesus, because up to this point, uh, Jesus has been very um, mindful of time and place. So there were times where Jesus almost seems a little bit reserved, right? Like he's approaching some sort of dramatic line, and yet he recognizes like there's more to the story than this. And so he, he kind of takes a step back. But as he enters into Jerusalem for the last time, like, he knows his time and place. And he knows that the story is going to come to a, a dramatic and climactic conclusion here shortly. And so we see that, like, reservedness sort of, like, go away. As some gospel accounts tell us, like, his first act in Jerusalem is he starts flipping tables in the, the temple, right? And so uh, often this sort of, like, unreserved energy is uh, in these encounters with the religious leaders, and you can read these stories from the, the perspective of the religious leaders and see like, how they might interpret Jesus' actions to um, suggest that maybe they are um, uh, incompetent or that they may have a, uh, or challenge their authority. 
And let me tell you, as a religious leader, the one thing I don't want is somebody to call me incompetent or challenge my authority, darn it. (laughs) Says the Mennonite pastor, yeah. Um, Anyways, so with that sort of like background in mind, we, this makes sense, the beginning of this passage in Matthew 22, uh, starting in verse 34. When the Pharisees, one particular sect of Judaism, heard that, they had, that he, meaning Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, another sect within Judaism, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This seems to be the energy behind the testing. Like, Jesus has kind of poked and prodded a little bit too much, perhaps. And he said, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest. Let's sit with this question for a second, because uh, in the year 2023, um, we can often hear words like commandment and law and assume that these are like these sort of dry, archaic, sort of static, dead, arbitrary commandments, yeah, Uh, that were kind of dropped down and don't really have any sort of significance other than like, obey these and God won't smite you, yeah? But that couldn't be further from the truth. See, for, for uh, uh, a first century Jewish person engaging with the law, this had deep significance for them. Because as we trace the law within the story of the people of God, we recognize that the, the law was given on the heels of the Exodus. On this moment when God decisively acted and liberated uh, the, the Hebrew people from their enslavement uh, in Egypt. And so as the people find themselves now newly liberated, they're, they're wandering, asking, like, what kind of a people will we be? Will we continue to be slaves who have our dignity uh, stomped out of us? Or will we actually be like Egypt, the world superpower of the day, and will we now oppress people? And in the law, we seem to see God suggesting something other than that. See, the law would have been understood as, like, how do we live into this gracious gift of new life that God has given to us? What does it mean to live a good life? We look to the law. What does it mean to inherit uh, eternal life, to borrow some language from the Gospels? We look to the law. The law for a good first century Jewish person would have been their way of understanding how we organize our shared life together to respond to this gracious gift that God has given to us of this new life. And so because the law was such a central part of their life, you can imagine, like, religious leaders sit around and talk about this a lot. Like, this would have been a, a very common sort of question among religious leaders. And so this is the question that gets posed to Jesus. And so Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, uh, so Jesus' response to this question is, essentially, you shall love God, love your neighbor. And I hate to burst our Christian bubbles here, but Jesus isn't doing anything super unique at this moment. (laughs) It seems as though, like, what Jesus is actually doing is borrowing from a pretty long-standing Jewish tradition up to this point that, like, the epitome of the law was to love God and love your neighbor. Like, by the time Jesus comes around, this seems to be sort of a, a solidified uh, tradition within Judaism as a whole, that this, these are the greatest commandments. These are the, the greatest of all the laws. The first one being drawn from Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the second coming from Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against any of your people, but you shall love the Lord your God as yourself. I am the Lord. 
See, by the time Jesus comes around, this is solidified within Judaism that like these two commandments out of all of the 613 commandments tend to be sort of like the interpretive lens through which we read the rest of the law. Meaning like this is how we make sense of the rest of these. That we run them through this grid of loving God and loving our neighbor. So for example, uh, some rabbis uh, would have discussed uh, reading the commandments around like the death penalty through this lens of loving your neighbor. And some said like, there are more gracious acts of death penalty than others. And they leaned into that because of this command to love your neighbor. You may think, well, the death penalty is not a very gracious act of loving your neighbor. But if you, you want to take a dark turn and think about all of the expressions of the death penalty, yes, there are much more gracious forms of that, yeah? And so they would lean into that. But it's also been documented that some rabbis even looked at like the death penalty through this lens of this commandment to love your neighbor and said, no, you can't love your neighbor <laughs> and live into the, the death penalty. And so they set up all of these sorts of barriers and made it really complicated process to actually like ever invoke this commandment towards the death penalty. See, for the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, like love of God and love of neighbor became almost synonymous with one another. Like it almost would have been po impossible to, to imagine loving God without also loving your neighbor in the same way. Which means that as we come back to this opening question that we were grappling with of like, if we want to know if we are loving God, perhaps all we need to do is ask if we are loving our neighbor. As one author put it, the, the biblical case for loving God is loving our neighbor. <laughs> Or to put it in another way, like the, a love, our love of our neighbor is a litmus test for our actual love of God. Perhaps this is the, the same sort of energy behind the author of 1 John who writes, those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Or perhaps this is the same sort of energy uh, that Paul had as he writes in Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we want to know if we're loving God, perhaps all we need to do is ask if we are loving our neighbor. Now, this is... Um, this is the reason why I had some frustration uh, with uh, a number of churches in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, if you allow yourself to go back to that place, remember that like, we, we shut down pretty early. Um, and then we met on Zoom, and then we met outside, masked on very sunny, hot, 90-degree days, sweating, losing all sorts of weight in the midst of all of that. And then we were back on Zoom, and it wasn't for like a full year plus before we actually like sang together, even outside masked. And yet in the midst of all of that, um, there were a number of churches that like continued to meet unmasked singing. And the reason for that was like they needed to worship to express their love of God. But as I saw that, I was like, well, your love of God is doing one of the most dangerous things in the midst of COVID, gathering a lot of people in a room, unmasked singing, risking the health of everybody, and then going out and risking the health of everybody else, right? And I remember thinking, like, if your love of God isn't loving your neighbor, I don't know that it's actually a, an expression of your love of God. Yeah. By the way, like, that's why we chose to be really, really... Um, 
uh, cautious throughout this whole time. Um, like, because we saw, like, if, if an act of loving God doesn't actually love our neighbor and puts our neighbors at risk, like, it's not an act of loving God. And so, ironically, our lack of corporate worship was actually a profound act of loving God because that was a way that we could love our neighbor. Now, let me get off my soapbox and my self-righteousness here because uh, I stumbled into something this past week that, well, to put it nicely, uh, kicked me in the back, the, the back of the seat of my pants, yeah? Um, see, I'm good at not swearing. Uh, uh, so I was doing some studying around this idea of neighbor, particularly neighbor uh, in like, um, Hebrew language and Jewish thought, and I came across something that I knew. The Hebrew use of the word neighbor uh, is a really broad sort of term. It can mean um, something as um, specific as like the person that lives next door to you, like somebody that you have close proximity with, somebody that you have an established relationship to. And it can mean something as broadly as like a fellow human being passing by. <laughs> I knew that. What I didn't know is what I'm going to read next. More striking in Hebrew, the words neighbor, re'ah, and if you hear that and you're like, boy, that would make a really great name for a baby girl, you are absolutely right. <laughs> the Hebrew word neighbor, re'ah, and enemy, ra, share the same consonants. They differ only in the vowels, which are not included in the text. Here's my understanding of this. The Hebrew word neighbor, re'ah, and the Hebrew word enemy, ra, are somehow connected linguistically. Sort of like the word uh, integrity and integrate, perhaps, right? Like you hear those words and you're like, oh, there's some sort of connection between those words, right? Which means that perhaps within the Jewish imagination, as they're reading the text, particularly like Leviticus 19:18, that says to love your neighbor, perhaps there's this, this stretching of their imagination to say that when, when they read the commandment to love your neighbor, that it also means to love even your enemy. Now, of course, this is uh, a, a connection that Jesus makes all the more explicit in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus seems to suggest throughout the Gospels that if we want to love God, the way that we do that is by loving our neighbor. And the way that we love our neighbor is perhaps by even including those that we might consider our enemies. Now, an appropriate question here would be, like, what gives? <laughs> like, why, why do the scriptures seem to draw this connection between love of God and love of neighbor, even, like, to a love of our enemies? Like, what's the sort of logic behind all of this? Well, the logic seems to be right there on the very opening pages of our scripture in Genesis 1, where we read, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do you see it here? <laughs> because each and every one of us, every single human being, all of humanity bears some sort of spark of the divine, bears some piece of God's very self deep within them. And so when we see this commandment to love God, it's not that God is some sort of egomaniac whose ego needs to be coddled, but it's that God is a good parent and looks upon God's children 
and wants us to love and care for one another because all of us as God's children bear some piece of God within us. Which means that if we want to honor God, and if we want to love God, and if we want to serve God, perhaps the best way to do that is to honor and love and serve our neighbor, even those that we might include to be our enemies. See, this seems to be a consistent theme all throughout the Gospels, of Jesus calling us back to this this radical idea at the beginning of the, the Scriptures, that every single human is created in the image of God. And this seems to exist across like those who find themselves on the margins and those who uh, exist on the other side of the line from our, our nationality, our ethnicity, our politics. And Jesus seems to say time and time again that regardless of all of that, every single be- human being has a piece of God within them and are worthy of love and respect and honor. And so friends, um, let's love God passionately. To use a, a phrase from my youth, let's, let's be on fire for God. <laughs> let's love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. But let us also recognize that perhaps the best way that we can do that is by loving our neighbor with that same sort of passion. We love our neighbor, including our enemies, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. If we want to know if we're loving God, perhaps the best All we need to do is ask if we are loving our neighbor, which also apparently includes our enemies. So let's do that, friends. Amen.